let's get our Bibles. Let's go to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. We are spending our summer in a series called We Believe, and this is unpacking our statement of faith as a church. Just to be clear, even though the statement of faith is giving us a structure, God's Word is our authority. The Bible is where we go for what we believe and what we know is true and to know who Christ is and what he's done. And so God's word is the central authority here. Now, if you've been following along through that structure of the statement of faith, you know we've covered several areas, and each area is just a broad topic that it's, it, it, it's impossible to just cover everything in a sermon. So I thought it'd be great to take two sections and combine them into one sermon today. That sounds smart, doesn't it? So we're actually going to take section three about God's sovereign purposes and then section seven about Christ's saving work. And we're combining them today in a sermon entitled, Jesus, Our Sovereign Savior. So we want to understand, we want to celebrate God's sovereignty in saving sinners like you and me. Now, we always need to cover bad news in order to see the good news. And there is some very specific bad news for our culture and time right now. There is an epidemic. I know when you hear epidemic or pandemic, we're like really tired of hearing those words. But the epidemic I'm referring to today predates COVID and is much more deadly than any physical disease. And that is an epidemic of narcissism that focus on and obsession with self. It's nothing new. It's happened since the garden. But there are all kinds of different ways that same ancient sin manifests itself. We can see it right now in our culture, what seems to be more dominant than I can remember in my lifetime more prevalent in every area of our society, whether that's politics or entertainment or education or even areas of the church, where self is just reigning supreme, whether it be in dialogue where you can't say anything that might offend someone because it's all about preservation of self. Or if that's, I'm going to say whatever I want, no matter who I offend, because it's all about self. Now, I've often picked on social media. I promise I'm not against social media. I think it can be a wonderful tool. And many of you use it as that wonderful tool to share encouragement, share scripture, share the gospel, stay in touch with people who are uh, far away from us. But I think that's just an example of a concentrated location we can all see very clearly what it looks like when the worship of self reaches its nth degree, where we see everyone unhappy with their lives. This is how the cycle usually takes place. And by the way, I'm not just talking to young people. Adults, we're just as guilty. We're unhappy with some area of our life, We take that unhappiness, and instead of going to Christ, instead of our identity in Christ being secure, we we somehow feel that if we could only project something different, it will change. We, we, We don't think we can change reality, so we focus on changing perception. We project not who we are, 
No, no, no. We project who we want to be. And we project who we think others want us to be. And then, invariably, we still find ourselves unfulfilled, unhappy, even more so because we have now started to look for identity and peace and acceptance and love in a place that is void of all of those things. And so what happens? As a result, it should be no surprise right now as we scan the culture and the church, we have some of the highest rates of anxiety, of depression, of gender confusion, and even suicide. Because we have looked for affirmation and identity in self and in others instead of in Christ. Now, that bad news is meant to sober us and it's meant to lead us to the good news that only in Christ will we find true fulfillment, true joy. Only in Christ can we see what unconditional love looks like for those who have trusted in him. That self-centeredness, that it'd be very easy for us as the church to point to the culture and say, yeah, they need to get their act together. No, we got to point at ourselves because the self-centeredness and the narcissism creeps its way into the church in every area we see in society. We have the answer for it, but it doesn't mean we are immune from it. And so that narcissism, that self-centeredness starts creeping its way into our fellowship and into our friendships. And what did they think about me? And what they say to me? And they didn't say hi to me this morning. And they, they're sitting with them and they're not sitting with me. Just imagine all the me that's in our thoughts day to day. And the area I want to go after this morning is how the, the me monster, how the narcissism starts creeping into our understanding of God and our relationship with him and the beautiful gift of salvation, how we can be tempted to think it's about me, it's up to me, God is happy when I am doing right and he doesn't love me anymore or I'm not saved anymore when I'm doing wrong. I am the holder and keeper of my salvation and well, what happens when we live that way? Some of the very similar repercussions of when the world is chasing identity elsewhere. The end result is the same. It's either going to be religious pride, look how great I'm doing, or it's going to be crushing condemnation. I can't ever seem to get it right. How could God love somebody like me? I must not even be saved. God does not intend for his people to live in either of those ditches. His beautiful truth points us to a sovereign Savior, the one who saves not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And that is our great hope this morning. If I could boil the sermon down to a central thought, it would be this. When we recognize Jesus as sovereign in salvation... It will bring him maximum glory, and it will give us maximum joy. Amen.
So let's read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10, and then we're going to pray and ask for God's help. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray. Lord, so far, before we even unpack these glorious truths, our hearts are encouraged because we know you are sovereign, Lord. And yet we also confess our hearts wrestle with what that means. So would you meet us now through the power of the Spirit and illuminating your word? Help us see the age-old truths that maybe we've forgotten, that maybe we've missed, that we need to be reminded of this morning that, Lord, our existence would not revolve around us, but it would revolve around you. Meet us now, we pray, Jesus. Amen. As you likely know, the letter to the Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to several different churches, but one of which were the Ephesians. The city of Ephesus was a, a large metropolis, very multicultural, It was well advanced beyond its time. It had a lot of travelers coming in and out, and because of that, a lot of religious consumerism, a lot of idolatry, a lot of pagan temples. And this letter written by the Apostle Paul to these Christians, it was not corrective. It was encouragement. It was a celebration of God's sovereignty in their salvation, a celebration of God's sovereignty in their lives. Imagine living in that kind of culture, which we don't really have to work hard imagining it. We live in one where we're receiving the reminder from God himself, I've got you. I've got this. Things look like they're out of control, but I'm sovereign. I'm sovereign in your salvation, and I'm sovereign in your circumstances. Now, I say the word sovereign. We're going to hear that a lot this morning. I don't want to assume we all know what that means. It means, as God is sovereign, it means that he has ultimate authority. He is in control and in charge. His will does not have to be cleared by anybody's permission. His will will be done. Now, that's a great comfort when you trust in the Lord. It is a great horror if you don't. And so to see God as sovereign brings great joy. And the verses we just read, actually verses 3 all the way down through verse 14, is one long sentence in the original language. 
One long sentence, one long celebration, one long praise of God's sovereignty and how he saved us and why he saved us and who deserves all the glory in our salvation. Well, in all these beautiful truths, I'm just going to hold up two of these life-giving truths for us to see and celebrate this morning. The first is this, God chose us in Christ. In verse 3, where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's, He's praising God for all the spiritual blessings that we have when we trust in Christ. And primarily, Jesus coming to earth, living and dying for our sins, for our salvation. And then verse 4, specifically, for whom God has chosen, look at this, from the foundation of the world. That will blow our minds when we think of it. God chose you, if you're saved, God chose you from the foundation of the world. That means when you trusted in Christ, it wasn't like you woke God up and said, oh, he's like, oh, you too? Okay, well, come on in. God chose you before you ever chose him. We weren't here before the foundation of the world. He was, because he is. So God's salvation did not begin when you said a prayer or when I heard the gospel. Before you were ever born, before you took your first breath, God already knew you and already chose you to save you. Now, I'm not importing something to the text. If we just look at that one sentence, from the foundation of the world, what other conclusion would we come to? But it's good to see the span of Scripture. And it's clear the Bible, all through the Bible, Old Testament and New, highlights, centers upon, focuses on God's sovereign will and his sovereignty. But particularly in the New Testament, when it comes to salvation in Christ, because that's where our focus is today, there's still great examples. Let me just give you four. John 15, 16. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Then when the early church began to preach the gospel in the book of Acts chapter 13, It says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Have you ever noticed that in Acts 13? That's an amazing verse. As many as who were already appointed to salvation believed. God already made the appointment. They just showed up. God, his choosing came before their belief. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined, predetermined to be conformed to the image of his son. And then 2 Thessalonians 2. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, these are just a few of hundreds of verses all through Scripture that make it clear God is sovereign in choosing his people before we ever choose him. This, we need to throw up the white flag and surrender and say, we don't get it. This is a mystery. 
This is a mystery that our minds won't be able to comprehend. I think it's a valid discussion to say, well, if God is sovereign, how do my decisions make any difference? I think that's a valid discussion. But here's the unfortunate piece of that. As much as this doctrine is hotly debated in the church and has been for centuries, I find that as a great tragedy. I like a good debate. That can be healthy. But I find it as a tragedy that this particular doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation lands in this contentious category that we have to kind of couch everything we say about it. Well, I'm not saying this and I'm not saying that. As opposed to us celebrating God's sovereignty. His sovereignty and salvation is not something for us to to debate. It's not something for us to to divide over. It's not to bring confusion. It's meant to be celebrated. Not a mystery to be solved, but a beautiful doctrine to be celebrated. Now, let me share from my own life, because I need to confess to you. For a large part of my Christian life, I did not see the sovereignty of God as something to be celebrated. I was one that would argue against it. If you like theological terms, I grew up Arminian. I grew up believing salvation was all up to me. Now, if you really pressed me, I would say, of course, Jesus is the one who saves. Well, how come you're saved and not your buddy who you went to high school with who's not saved? And then I would start stumbling. Well, um, because I went to church. Oh, okay. So everybody that goes to church is saved? Well, no. I would say, um, because I heard the gospel and responded. Oh, so your response and you going to church... That's why you're saved. And when you start kind of pressing, if if someone were pressing me in that moment, and I did have a few people do that, it began to unravel because what became clear was it was still about me. What can I do? What did I choose? What did I hear? How did I respond? Not that our response is unimportant. When we hear the gospel, we must respond in faith and repentance. But the bigger point is, even the faith and repentance we respond with is a gift from God, given to those whom he has chosen to save. Now, we'll get to some of these other things, but it's important to see at the heart, at least for me, and maybe it is if you're struggling with it too, at the heart of it for me, it was about self. I did not want to relinquish my role or what I thought was my role in my salvation. Embedded in that was an implied self-righteousness that I would have to surrender, that I would have to give up. If I really confessed and believed what the Bible teaches, it's not because I was God's favorite. We used to sing a song in our old church that uh, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. Now, I think there's some beautiful truth to that, but that still sounds really narcissistic. It's all about me. I am such an amazing catch. Jesus, save me. No. We wouldn't say that out loud like I just did, but that's usually kind of what what our hearts wrestle with. Because at the heart of it, guys, we never want to relinquish our will. There's something, we are addicted to autonomy. And there's something about that when it comes to our Christianity that does not comport. Jesus doesn't say, let me come alongside your will. He says, surrender, follow me, obey. But he does so in such a way that he gives us the incentive and the love and the joy to obey. 
So with that, as we, as we think on the sovereignty of God, the right response it should not be agitation, should not be confusion, should be worship. To know that the all-powerful God of the universe decided to save some should just blow us away. The, the Almighty who needs nothing, who does not need relationship with us, chose to have relationship with us, should amaze us. The fearful, just, holy judge of the living and the dead has such love for mankind that he sent his son to die in our place. How can we respond to that in any way except worship? So Ephesians 1 is very helpful in making this clear. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, one question is, why did he do that? Well, we're told several reasons in this text. God chose you to make you holy, verse 4. It says that we should be holy and blameless before him. So the Bible says that it's God's will for you, your sanctification. That's what God's will is for us, to cleanse us from sin and make us more like Christ. That's one reason God chose you. God chose you because he loves you. The end of verse 4, it says, in love. God predestined you for adoption as sons and daughters in Christ. Before you chose him, he chose you to be part of his family. Now, for parents, that's an easy connection because we know we love our kids, not because of what they can do for us, not because of what they did, good or bad, or do day to day. We love them because they're ours. They belong to us. God loves you. He chose you. You're his. God chose you because... This is deep because he wanted to. Verse 5, according to the purpose of his will. Because he wanted to. It was his idea. He thought up the whole plan of salvation. I don't know why he chose me, but I certainly am glad he did. Aren't you? We praise God for that. And then we see that God chose you so that you and I would give him praise. Look at verse 6. Beautiful phrase. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Another word for Christ. God chose you and saved you so that you would see his grace and you would say, wow, what an amazing God we serve. We would give him glory. So again, church, these verses, these truths are not meant to cause us contention or debate. That would be like us going through a a big art museum and you see this masterpiece hanging on the wall. And instead of being in awe and just gazing at it, you get angry at it because I didn't paint that. That wouldn't make any sense, right? How, How is it that we cannot gaze upon the salvation that Christ has provided and unless we can claim part of it, we can't rejoice? But when we really know our own depravity, when we're really honest about just how bad we are without Christ, that humbles us to say, oh, wait a minute. I couldn't have had anything to do with my salvation. He had to rescue me. Because later on in Ephesians, it reminds me, I was dead. You were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, but God intervened. So 
we can see these beautiful truths and celebrate. Our statement of faith puts it this way. As God has appointed the elect to glory, so he has foreordained all the means necessary to carry out his saving purposes. Those whom he has predestined are redeemed by Christ, effectually called to faith by his spirit, justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by God's power to the end. God does all of this in order to demonstrate his mercy to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. So, God chose us in Christ. And the second truth I want us to see this morning, God redeemed us through Christ. Look at verse 7. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. We know that through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, he paid for the sins of all who would trust in him. That's called redemption. The great theologian B.B. Warfield, he once said this, There is no title of Christ which is more precious to Christian hearts than Redeemer. It is the name specifically of the the Christ of the cross. Whenever we pronounce it, the cross is placarded before our eyes and our hearts are filled with loving remembrance, not only that Christ has given us salvation, but that he paid a mighty price for it. That word redemption, that's what that means. It means to take a great debt and pay it off. To pay a debt that was owed to get back what is valuable to you. Now anybody who's ever been in debt, you know how that can feel. That's probably the majority of us in this room. Debt feels like a weight, a looming cloud. It can feel like a financial hopelessness that appears to have no end. And by the way, if you're only paying interest on your credit card, there will be no end. So we'll talk about that later. (laughs) It can feel like a looming cloud, darkness, hopelessness. But if you've ever known what it is to pay off a debt of any size, you know there's this, oh, I can breathe again. And then as you paid off a credit card or you've paid off a car or maybe you've even paid off your house, the greater the debt the greater the joy when it is paid off. Our salvation is like that. If we sometimes recognize that we've started to lose our joy, lack joy in some way in Christ, one of the first places we need to investigate is do we remember what Jesus saved us from? This is a fine line. I'm not encouraging you to go dig up the sins that have been forgiven, but it it is important for us to remember where we came from. And if you were saved at a young age and you don't have this long history of living without Christ and what that looks like, you can know theologically we're all depraved. And apart from Christ, we would be wayward and worse than we could imagine. But because God intervened, he rescued us. We need to stop and remember just how bad we would be or how bad we were. We need to stop and remember even the thoughts that we have had this morning that God would obviously be justified in judging us, but because of Christ, we are accepted and loved and forgiven and washed. The greater the debt, the greater the celebration when that debt is paid off. 
But if we don't see that, if we've kind of been lulled to sleep and it seems like we've just been a Christian for so long, I'm just generally a good person and I got this, Lord, well, then we're on a slippery slope because then we stop appreciating his mercy and his grace. Oh, that's for people who are really bad, not for me. Oh, no, no. Charles Spurgeon famously said, when we think too lightly of sin, we think too lightly of the Savior. So that bad news makes the good news good. When we begin to peel back the pride and remember just how much Jesus saved us from, how lost we were, how high a price he paid for us, when he took that beating on his back, when he had his beard plucked out, when he had that crown of thorns shoved into his skull, when he took those Roman spikes through his hands and feet, and worst of all, when the full wrath of God was poured out on him for us. That's the price that was paid. That's how much we should appreciate his salvation. The wrath that was poured out on Christ now allows Christ to pour out his grace on us. Aren't we glad? The end of verse 7 says, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Jesus, our Redeemer, lavished us with grace. That means he poured out on us an overflowing, overabundance of mercy and grace. The Bible calls that the riches of his grace, a treasure trove of God's grace. Church, you are rich. Speaking of debt, your debt has been erased and you are wealthy, not with the wealth of the world. That's abject poverty compared to the riches we are given in Christ. His grace, his mercy, the Holy Spirit that lives in us, the treasure of his written word, the treasure of fellowship with one another, all of these gifts and so many more are given to you freely. But they came at a great cost to one. The least we could do is remember how great that cost is and give him the glory and not try to keep it ourselves. The place of our faith where we are wrestling, where we are wondering what came first, me choosing God, God choosing me. Can, can we just put that aside for a moment and just see that it is Christ who redeemed it is Christ who rescued. It is Christ who has forgiven us once and for all. We did nothing to deserve it. We didn't deserve Jesus saving us when, he, when that first happened, the first time we trusted in Christ. We can point back to that's when I was saved. And we don't deserve it now. We didn't save ourselves and we can't keep ourselves. The same grace that saves you is the same grace that keeps you. The same sovereign Lord that found you when you weren't looking for him, he's the one that holds you even when you don't know what to do. He's the one who saves and keeps. Now, I said before, that doesn't mean that our obedience is unimportant. But what it does, even as Christians, even after we have repented and trusted in Christ and we're followers and disciples of Jesus, our obedience is still important. The difference here is when you're living out of God's sovereignty, 
The difference is you're not obeying in order to be saved. You're obeying because you already are saved. You're walking and following Christ. You love Christ not to try to earn his love back, but because you're already loved. Your love for him becomes a response of his love for you. You're not trying to get accepted by God to to just do better and be good. You're walking in obedience because you're already accepted in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Doesn't that change up things completely? I don't know about you, but I look back, I lived too much of my Christian life thinking of God as an angry boss who's ready to lower the hammer the next mistake I make. You know what? The hammer was lowered on Jesus, and it's not going to happen again for Christians. We get grace. We get love. We get patience. Oh, how patient is the Lord with us. And not patient in the sense where he's just tolerating screw-ups. That's not how God sees his church. He loves us. He has redeemed us. Jesus gave his life for his church. And he has worked it out that the people he wants to spend eternity with, there's a mystery for you, is us. (laughs) Praise God. That's not because we've got it all together, because we know we don't. It's because he's good and loving and faithful. When you start with the gospel and you start with the good news of faith in Jesus, that he's the one that saves, oh man, that frees us from the tyranny of man-pleasing. That frees us from, from condemnation. That frees us from that endless, fruitless pursuit of worry about what everybody thinks about us. And instead, we get rest. We get to rest from our striving. We get to rest from from all of the trying to measure up to somebody else's standards. And we just get to drink deeply of that truth that Jesus saved us. Jesus loves us. We are already accepted, already redeemed in him once and for all. We're not living for God's acceptance. We're living from it. We're not trying to be good enough to earn his love. We already have it. The statement of faith says, for those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, God's righteousness requires no further sacrifice for sin, nor is there any human achievement or merit to be added to Christ's accomplishment. The atoning work of Christ is wholly efficacious. That just means it's effective. It accomplishes what it's meant to do. Securing the full salvation of all the elect by purchasing the forgiveness of sins, the gifts of faith and repentance, eternal life, and every other blessing that comes to God's people. Jesus wants us to know that this morning. He wants us to see that and understand how much he loves us, how much he has given for us. That's why it says in Scripture, in all wisdom and insight, then verse 9 making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. He could have just saved us and not told us why, but no, he wanted to give us understanding. He wanted to pull back the curtain and say, oh, and by the way, you're saved. You want to know why you're saved? Because I wanted you, because it was my will, because I love you, not because of something you've done. 
He opens our eyes to that mystery, to the majesty that God is the one who saves. And he wants us to have the wisdom and the insight and the understanding which will fuel our praise and will fuel our worship. Why am I singing this morning? Why am I sitting here listening to a guy preach God's word? Why would I trust God through the week when I'm facing hard times? Why? Because I know he's good. He's given me understanding. He's revealed himself to me in his word through the spirit that causes me to have joy and peace that I cannot comprehend. I love how the Bible says he gives us peace that passes understanding. I get a picture of this can't figure it out. I've got peace in the middle of a storm. Why? Jesus gives it. I can't, I can't explain it by all intents and purposes. I should be worried. I should be anxious. I should be angry, but he gives joy in the midst of sorrow. He gives peace when it doesn't look like you've got anything to anchor peace in because he is our peace. You see how the sovereignty of God is not meant to be some threat to us. It's not meant to, to be some, some argument where, well, wait a minute, I don't want to feel like a robot. And wait a minute, somebody did something against my will. Can I just tell you that's great news that God didn't wait on us to choose him because we never would. Isn't that wonderful news? God didn't wait on us to try to be good enough because he said, okay, well, now, now I'll hang out with you. Now I'll let you be in my presence. No, he intervened because we were hopelessly lost and would be right now without his sovereign salvation. This morning, it's so important to see this changes how we live. Verse 10, he gives us this glory as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Here we have a snapshot of the ultimate end goal of all of this sovereignty. God's desire, his will, that will come to pass is uniting all of his people together. And when Jesus returns, redeeming creation, that doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved. We know they won't. Hell's going to have people in it who have rejected Christ. But to redeem creation, take a broken world and remake it to be something new, new heaven, new earth, that's where we're spending eternity with Christ Because he wants to unite and will unite all things in him. Why does that matter right now? You and I are sitting in a room right now. We are experiencing a snapshot. Oh, but a morsel. Barely an appetizer of what heaven will be. When I say heaven, I mean the eternal presence of God, not a location. That we will be united in him. We are united, those who have trusted in Christ. We are brothers and sisters. That's a term that we use a lot in the South. I think we need to bring that back. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are family. We're not acquaintances. Just as God doesn't just tolerate us, we don't tolerate each other. Maybe it feels that way sometimes. But we're family. We have more in common with each other than we do blood relatives. Whatever you would categorize yourself as in political parties or socioeconomic class or nationality, none of those things compare to the unity of the identity we as the church have in Christ. To unite all things in him. When you live out of that, when you start with the gospel and you recognize, I did nothing to deserve God's salvation, Jesus bought it for me. 
I, I did nothing to earn God's grace. Jesus pours it out on us. We were lost. He found us. We were separate. Jesus reconciled us because of his grace. Our statement of faith says, on the cross, Christ bore our sins, took our punishment, propitiated God's wrath against us, vindicated God's righteousness, and purchased our redemption in order that we might be reconciled to God and live with him in blessed fellowship forever. To recognize Jesus as sovereign in salvation gives him maximum glory and gives us maximum joy. And let me close by giving you a few ways this is going to make all the difference in your life. When you know Christ is sovereign in saving you and you didn't save yourself, you won't struggle with condemnation because you'll know through the peace that he gives, a sovereign God saves you and the same sovereign God keeps you. We won't struggle as much with self-righteousness because we will recognize where we would be apart from Christ and it will humble us and we will be grateful for salvation, not taking it for granted. When we see God sovereign in salvation, we will pray with faith knowing a sovereign God hears and answers the prayers of his people. We will evangelize with boldness knowing God has already determined to save some. And he's already determined that he wants to use his church spreading the gospel so you can be guaranteed some will believe as you share the gospel. You'll worship differently. With God's sovereignty in mind, you'll worship with passion, knowing that the sovereign God who saves us is worthy of all the glory and praise we can give him. We will suffer well knowing that a sovereign God will somehow work it all for the good. And you and I will live a life full of joy because the thread that will run through every day is that reminder that there is a one day coming where the sovereign Savior has guaranteed you and I will be with him for eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we want to start by saying thank you. Thank you for how you save. And yet, Lord, I know we've, we've waded in some, into some deep waters that may feel like we haven't answered every question this morning. Lord, we don't believe that was the goal anyway. We're going to have questions until the day we die. But, Lord, we, we want to be able to take this mystery of your sovereignty and not divide over it, not be contentious or prideful about it, but just the opposite, Lord. Unify your church by reminding us it was you who saved. And may we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.